Hello, I'm Drew Cat, a Choices Director of State Research and Special Projects. Today, I'm in the studio to introduce our listeners to a researcher to watch. I'm here with Albert Chang, Assistant Professor at the University of Arkansas. Thanks for joining me today, Albert. Hey, nice to be with you, Drew. So, Albert, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little about what attracted you to issues in K-12 education and educational choice? Yeah, sure. So uh, as an undergrad, I was an undergrad at um, UC Berkeley, and I loved math. And so naturally, I I majored in uh, pure mathematics. I like to make that distinction, not applied math, but pure math, the real stuff. And uh, of course, you, as an undergrad majoring in that, you run into the situation of, what am I going to do with it? But then I realized I like teaching it, like talking about it, like working with youth. So naturally, I became a high school math teacher. And that was my initial entry into um, the education world. Okay. And what was that experience like? Uh, I mean, my wife is a is a high school teacher and has her own issues sometimes with, let's just say, the, the quirks and personalities of teenagers and the occasional teenage angst. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. I totally enjoyed the experiments. And yes, it, it had its quirks. Especially if you are a young-looking 22-year-old, fresh out of college grad as well, teaching some folks that actually aren't that much younger than you. But look, I over, you know, it was it was an enjoyable experience. Lots of challenges, obviously. You know, taught every type of kid there is under the sun. I think at that stage in my life, and so uh, you know, got to know a lot of folks from uh, you know who grew up in different backgrounds than I did, and and also taught folks that maybe shared a similar background as as I did as well. So. Eye-opening experience in in terms of just working with youth, but also, you know, kind of eye-opening in terms of understanding how schools work and what this whole education enterprise looks like from the teacher side of things. I guess we're all familiar with with schooling since we've all been students, but certainly it's eye-opening when you actually have to uh, run the show. Yeah, I'm sure. So how did you get from, you know, one type of classroom in the the K-12 environment to the to the type of classroom that you're in now? Well, see, I taught for about three, four years, I think. And I think towards the end of my stint there, I decided that there were bigger fish to fry, so to speak. In some sense, I, you know, I felt like I, I had more to give, um, a, a bigger role to play in, in this world. I mean, it's not to say to downplay the, the work of teachers and, and uh, you know, the work that I did back then. I mean, there was a part of me that wanted to be the 30-year veteran cool teacher who taught math and, you know, to play out, you know, walk out that role and basically seek the good of the school and community that I was working at. But, uh, you know, I, I, had, I had mentors in my life that really helped me entertain and think about other potential, you know, other, other ways to use the, the talents and, and gifts that I had. And so certainly, you know, that prompted me to think maybe broadly about education, think broadly about policy, and then eventually uh, took me to, to grad school. Yeah, so what was that experience like for you? Well, so I started with a master's program. I went to Biola University down in Southern California, a small liberal arts Christian school, and certainly that experience was, was quite formative. Certainly it's informed, to this day, much of my thinking on non-cognitive skills, moral formation, character education. Certainly, it's informed my thinking about what's education for. And so I can assure you that I, I would not be the same person that I am today had I not spent two years in that program thinking through issues, you know, philosophically, theologically, and 
whatever logically of uh, mm. <laughs> uh, brand of study, I guess, or area of study there is in that program. But then, yeah, no, after that, then went uh, definitely after kind of a broad type of education, went a bit more technical to get some methodological training, you know, quant type training at the University of Arkansas. And yeah. So, yeah, I think all in all, it's, it's worked out and, you know, have the technical training with maybe a broader range of ways of thinking and thought. And that's how I've ended up where I am today. Yeah, and I think I think we first met out of an AEFP San Antonio uh, a handful of years ago, and I remember definitely definitely being impressed by your knowledge of games, specifically strategic oriented <laughs> yeah, games. Yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, so so how, how do you see the link between kind of like your love of pure mathematics with um, strategy-related games and larger role-playing games and kind of the gamer world? Uh, wow, you're putting me on the spot. I, you know, um, trying to think about all how to unite uh, my my big hobby with my work. Um, yeah. No, there's definitely relationships. So, you know, I, I think one, my hunch is that gaming builds character. So... I think most listeners might be familiar with Settlers of Catan. Great game. Which, by the way, is a, yeah, it, well, anyway, I won't get into the details of, of the, the game, but, um, you know, when the, when the dice don't roll your way, there's, you have a number of choices of, of how to respond, some better than others. So, on the one hand, I think gaming certainly can stretch you individually. And, you know, that's all part of education. It's, it's forming the kind of person you are. But I think another link between maybe gaming and education is the institutions that, that gaming can build. So, you know, I, I like to think of schools not just here to serve an individual's ends. Hmm. Um, certainly that's a part of it. You know, we want schools to give individual skills so they can make it through college or get into college or find a stable career and have skills to do whatever kind of their life task is. So there's an individual aspect to education, but there's also a communal side. And so I think education also is about socializing people into communities. It's about tying people together. And and so gaming, you know, like schools, can be one of these types of civic institutions that actually help our world run smoothly. I guess, you know, part of human nature is to be connected to one another, to, to be in, in communion and relationship to one another. And so I've seen just, you know, in my, with my hobby, how gaming has done that. I mean, I've met folks that I would otherwise never have met had I not gamed. And I'm happy to send a, a short article that I wrote for a magazine about what gaming has done for certain folks, you know, myself and, and friends in that community. Worth a read. I don't just write education. <laughs> Yeah, and fair readers, you can see that article linked directly above these words. So, Albert, it's kind of fascinating. You're you're talking about communities and schooling and gaming. Because for me, growing up on a farm with a 56K internet connection, <laughs> yeah, school is where I did have my community of gaming. I remember, like, staying after school with a, there was a group of us that would stay after and play StarCraft together. Because mm-hmm. that was the only way that we could have that physical land connection mm-hmm, mm-hmm. those were great times yeah and so i mean yeah i mean they certainly gaming you know i mean the, the ways we, we connect are going to look different across communities 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting with the rise of globalization and how anyone could be, you know, playing a game with anyone anywhere at any time. It's just fascinating to really think of what what the sense of community really is and what a where that lives in a physical space or you know whether uh, or in a technological sense yeah um no i mean this this really touches on lots of lots of issues i mean you know the, there's certainly great potential for for increasing social connectedness i actually have a good gaming buddy now this one's online multiplayer you know computer gaming not not the typical tabletop strategy gaming that i do that you know over over just our our connection through some strategy gaming online uh, we've developed quite a quite a close friendship. And, you know, I won't get into all the details, but certainly, you know, been able to have the opportunity to help kind of navigate him and, and be there for him through a, a really tough life circumstance. So there's there's an upside, and then there's, there's also this this downside too. I mean, you know, we certainly we we all have our complaints about social media, and in some sense, you know, people it's often said that we are more connected than ever, but at the same time, we're as lonely as we ever have been as well. And so, you know, these are really big questions about, you know, what, what does technology do to kind of our understanding of being human? How does technology affect us, our lives? How does it affect how we live? You know, ed- education, broadly speaking, does touch upon, you know, these kinds of questions of what the, what, what, what's a life worth living look like? What's a good life? Yeah, no, well, I could go on. I don't want to get too uh, off topic here. No, there is no topic. We're on right <laughs> on topic, Albert. All right, perfect. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of interesting because if you think about, you know, circling back to education and thinking yeah. about, like, the Socratic method and Socrates and Plato and teaching small groups of individuals in a physical space versus uh-huh. now, like, like, can that happen in a chat room? More or less, like, educating everyone that's reading something and, like, have good constructive dialogue back and forth. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, the, the, there's always a potential. I mean, look, I mean, technology and, you know, new inventions, they always open up new possibilities and at the same time close off certain possibilities. And, you know, whether things work out on balance for the better or for the worse, it's always tough to predict. And, and so, look, with every new thing that comes out, I mean, it's important to gain wisdom and discernment into kind of figuring out how to handle these things. Um, I, I think certainly, you know, with the internet and, and chat rooms and, you know, cell phones, yeah, we as, a, as, a, as a, a culture really haven't figured out all the answers to what's a healthy, good use or appropriate use of, of all these things. And so certainly in, in education too, yeah, we, we really haven't figured out, you know, how to, how to leverage all this. I know personalized learning, I guess, is a it's a hot thing, and there's certainly an upside and a potential to do things. But uh, it remains to be seen. I mean, as far as I know, the, the evidence on how revolutionary and effective that approach is, certainly we haven't, we haven't seen what maybe some folks had been predicting. Yeah, so what are your thoughts on, like, the hybrid schooling model of the individual taking, doing a lot of the coursework on their own, and then coming together for the larger group discussion? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I... I there's probably a way to, to do it well. You know, and I, I think one of the, the, the dangers or the challenges is how do you strike the balance between, you know, letting kids go at their own pace, 
but in a sense doing it in, in some kind of siloed fashion where they're just kind of in, you know engaging not engaging with anybody else then also then making sure that the student has uh, some type of uh, tie to to others who are co-learners you know in, in some sense learning is a social and, and communal activity so uh, yeah I mean I'm no expert in how to pull all this off but at least I can I think my hunch is that there there is a, a, a human side to things that requires some kind of connection, and it's unclear to me how much that can be substituted with a lot of the digital technology we have. But look, as I said before, new technology always opens up new opportunities and closes other ones. Really, we have to be uh, mindful and, and be careful in discerning you know, what those gains and losses are and, and taking stock constantly. Yeah. Like even, I can remember like some of the more recent graduate level courses that I had where the professor had virtual office hours. And it wasn't just like, okay, let's chat. It was a, like more or less through the, the software, it was a video conferencing system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was one-on-one video conferencing, which I found that highly valuable because I could still stay after work at my desk and do it, not have to go hassle with parking on campus, paying for parking and getting yep, into yep. their office and everything. It was just, there was, there was a certain level of convenience, but it was still like, it was nice to be able to see someone's face mm-hmm. and to be able to like, yeah, no, I, I do remember yeah. taking a number of online classes and, you know, sit meeting, uh, synchronous or, um, well, asynchronous is, is people not together. Right. So right. The opposite of that. And yeah, you know, we had the professor in the middle. I mean, we looked like the Brady bunch on, on screen and met for a few hours talking about, you know, educational philosophy. Yeah, it was quite the experience. Yeah, there's just something about being able to read someone else's facial expressions. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, totally yeah. adds a whole nother layer to any conversation. Right, right, right. And yes, I, I do also remember another online class where we were posting discussion comments on a forum, and yeah, having to wait, um, you know, five hours for someone to respond to you was not the most pleasant intellectual exercise. Yeah, which is which is kind of interesting doing a a parallel between those two experiences and uh, modern social media. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what so what kind of stuff have you been working on lately, Albert? What have I been doing? Well, so most of my work is in the area of character and, and virtue formation. You know, I've I've done work in figuring out can we you know how can we measure this better if if at all. And and two, uh, my main you know, the, the question that keeps me up at night and, and, and that I'm curious about most is how do we form character? Where does virtue come from? You know, how do we, um, why is it that certain people latch on to certain habits and practices and, and others don't? And so, yeah, no, I, it's, it's really a question of um, virtue and, and, and moral formation. How does that happen? So, you know, I'm involved in several projects that are pursuing, you know, those, those kinds of questions or pursuing answers to those kinds of questions in some way, shape, or form. Certainly, I'm, uh, you know, recently was, uh, was appointed to the Senior Research Fellow to CARDIS, which is a think tank in Canada that does work um, in, in just, you know, Canada and the U.S. throughout North America. And, you know, for them, you know, one of their, one of their big projects in, in the, at least in their education kind of portfolio is describing what adults who are educated in, in different kinds of environments and schools, you know, what do those adults look like? Um, what's their educational attainment look like? Their employment and, and work life look like? What do their families look like? 
what kind of value systems do they have? What's what's the nature of their their civic participation, civic life? All outcomes that are informed or influenced by the value systems that they they grew up in. So uh, you know that's that's just kind of an example of a project where we try to understand better how um, the I suppose moral communities that we grow up in affect us over the long run. Anyway, I could go on, but I don't want to. Four <laughs> listeners with with research, <laughs> unless you want to go there. <laughs> well, I'm kind of interested in this values, uh, lear- learning values, values formation. So it's yeah, especially in like when I started doing some of the parent survey work, and uh, I started coming across the question, and it, it seems like I don't know if it's a generational divide or what, but like where values are taught, where values are learned. Mm-hmm. So whether it's values should be taught at, and and it seems like there is a divide. It's whether value should be taught at school, value should be taught at home, value should be taught at church, value should be taught in the community. Yeah, no, I mean, look, there there are these different places. So I think uh, uh, David Brooks, um, the New York Times columnist, has a, a new book out, and uh, you know he uses the term, the phrase, moral ecology. And I, I mean, I, I think there's, uh, I don't know if he's the originator of that term, but in a sense, we all grow up in some kind of environment, or in a network of environments, I should say, that you know collectively then form some kind of ecology. And so, you know, what your home looks like, what your school looks like, for those that belong to some faith community, um, that's going to affect how they they view and think about big questions in life. You know, and and what's a value or or what the good life looks like. So, look, it really is a network of of things, as you say, and. My own view is that effective formation happens when there is consistency. And so certainly if, for example, if a young child is getting one message from school and one message from the home, you know, that leads to kind of some kind of confusion and incoherence, which, which probably isn't helpful for, for development. And I think there's some, some child psychology research on this. So don't quote me on this. I'm less familiar with that stuff. But yeah, look, values and lots of, you know, formative processes happen in a rich kind of network and web of communities. Should one trump the other? It's, I mean, you know, maybe there are there are places, certain relationships that might arguably be more important. You know, maybe the, the parent-child relationship probably should count more than, say, the relationship between like, some tutor and the child, um, you know, or like a piano teacher and the child. But look, I mean, if you conceive of education as child rearing and, and bringing up a child into some kind of maturity. Um, it takes folks in lots of different places to come together and paint a, a coherent vision of, of what the child should, should look like. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, like self-reports of where values are learned. I'm, I'm just thinking like my own experiences, because if you'd asked me when I was graduating high school where my value system came from, I would have probably said some combination of my parents and my church, my youth group, the sports teams that I was on, the coaches that I was interacted with. But then, honestly, like within the last couple of years, I realized that the majority of the values that I have come directly from my great grandmother, who is like the family figure that growing up I looked up to the most. But it was never like in even in part of my mind as a teenager that I had. May, like consciously or in, definitely in a lot of ways subconsciously copied a lot of her value system, which is just fascinating. Yeah, and, and what's fascinating is a lot of this is, is subconscious. We're not aware of, of what 
kinds of habits and, and, and practices we were adopting. I mean, I had a colleague who was doing a project on understanding uh, how students were using technology in their classroom and how they were trying to figure out, you know, the, the, the right principles and, and, and guiding values to help them use technology appropriately in the classroom. And so, you know, I think in some of the, the focus group interviews that they had, you know, they easily got students to say, oh, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't go to certain inappropriate, not safe for work websites at school. Therefore, I must be um, using it well, right? And what's fascinating, though, is that when he was in the classroom observing students, the very same students, who, or, you know, the, the students who kind of assess themselves positively on that front, were the very same ones that were using the devices to say go to Amazon.com or other shopping sites to you know look at shoes and things to buy, and the thing is that's not a values-neutral act, right? So so actually, kind of in in I suppose in in modern Western culture, so to speak, um, or you know kind of in in our kind of American society where consumerism is is, is valued. You know, the kids were living and breathing it. They, yeah. they weren't even aware that they were actually, they didn't make the connection that maybe there are certain degrees of inappropriateness that I'm embodying by um, spending my time just kind of perusing all these shopping sites, just as in the same way that there's there's probably some kind of inappropriateness with looking at, you know, going to sites that aren't safe for work. Yeah, that's that's kind of a fascinating thing to think about. Because yeah, it's one is seen as... Definitely societally acceptable. Yeah, right, right. So, so you know, we, we almost need to, and I guess it gets back to the original point, of, you know, I alluded to earlier about having discernment and, and times of um, reflectiveness to self-evaluate our behaviors and to see if we're behaving in a way that's reflect a life worth living. And, and what's fascinating is that, you know, the, the conceptions of, of a life worth living and of, of a good life are are things that you don't just derive from yourself. You actually discover these things in relationship with others. You practice life together and you figure out life together. Uh, no one kind of, uh, what is it, like Athena? Was it Athena that kind of sprung out from Zeus's head or am I missing, mixing the, the, the gods up? Um, uh, I've, I haven't know, done Greek mythology in many years, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, shame, shame on me for forgetting, but it, you know, it's not <laughs> as if like all our values just kind of out of our own will, just kind of spring up in isolation from within ourselves, right? We, we, we learn values and, and have, you know, conceptions of, of what the world ought to be and, and how we should live based on observing others, deliberating with others, engaging with others in, in particular practices. You know, I guess, you know, yesterday was, was, was Mother's Day, and so you know, I, I'm sure we all have certain traditions, whether it's to take our, our mother out for brunch. But, you know, in the practice of taking out your mother for brunch, you discover and kind of sketch out what, what love might look like within, you know, a familial love might look like. So, right, you don't, you don't just imagine what love is in the abstract out of your own, you know, in isolation, kind of disconnected or, or alienated from the actually, actual embodied world. Yeah, it, it's always fascinating to me that in the American English, there is one umbrella term of love. Yeah, we'll put these descriptors on it, like familial love, mm-hmm. paternal love, maternal love. But it, it, it's, it's always struck me, like, 
studying the Japanese language in high school and for part of college, like how many different words for love there were. And each one had this different meaning instead of just the the adjective in front describing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, it's, yeah, we, we, you know, the, the world and, and uh, I, I suppose reality is, is complex. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm no, uh, I guess I'm, I'm not of the school of uh, linguistics that thinks you can capture everything um, with words. Actually, there's a, there's a fun, uh, speaking of, you know, going back to my math comp, you know, pure math days, um, there's, there's actually a couple theorems in math that suggest, so this, you know, this gets into like cardinality and set theory, but, you know, there are, are different sizes of infinity and, you know, one of the proofs for this, I guess I'm going way into the weeds here, does suggest that there are these unnameable words that exist unnameable words you know things that are true but are unnameable mm. anyway yes. sorry that just got no. weird really no, no, no 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 <laughs> that's those are these are the conversations i love uh <laughs> well i think we did come kind of full full circle back to talking the pure math so uh albert uh before we go any any last words any pieces of forthcoming or previous research that you'd like to plug of your own Oh, forthcoming. Um, what what is forthcoming? I I don't know. I I, I don't know that there's uh, anything that soon, or as, at least I can't remember. <laughs> That's shame on me. Um, but if you want to ask for if you you ask for final thoughts, let's just say I just want to encourage everyone to um, uh, get into strategy gaming and um, see how that can enrich your life. Yeah, I I will be honest. Um, Andrew Luck, being the quarterback of the. Indianapolis Colts, I think there was a direct relationship between the number of people in the greater Indianapolis area that started playing Settlers after he <laughs> announced that it was his favorite game. Good for, good for, good for the city. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation, Albert. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Pleasure to chat. And to our listeners, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on platforms like SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and others for more of our coverage of new school choice research, education reform policy chats, and more. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back soon with more EdChoice chats. (laughs) 